0: Hey, get your Bibles out, and um, you can actually go to two different places, maybe three, if you're really dexterous. Isn't that dexterous or what's the word? Nobody else knows. All right, I just made that word up. If I'd have just been quiet about it, you'd have thought I'd known what I was talking about. Hey, find Isaiah 2 2. Isaiah 2 2. And then in just a moment, I'm going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you want to begin finding those locations, if you did not bring your bible with you we will post them on the screen overhead we just feel like it's important for folks to follow along to listen to god's word as well as see it i believe that's important but we've been we've been talking these last few weeks in our series that we've entitled reclaiming the seven cultural mountains and if you're wanting to catch up you can go to our website at itunes and you can catch up and listen to all that's been instructed all that's been taught But what we've been talking about basically comes out of Isaiah 2, verse 2. And if you can go ahead and post that, guys, I'd appreciate it very much. It says this. In fact, the first four verses of Isaiah 2 have a lot to do with this one. But it says, now, it shall come to pass in the latter days. And again, you all realize we're in latter days. Now, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, And shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And we've been instructing you in these last days that that there is indeed a theme in the scriptures that talks about the deteriorating conditions of our world. And in some sense, we can find scripture passages that talk to us about how the church as well in the last days will fall into uh, a deteriorated state. That there will be a form of godliness, but it will deny the power thereof. That there will be certain things that will go on in the church. According to Revelation 3, the Laodicean work was a church that had lost its its first love. And that it had become lukewarm. And uh, God said that He'd rather you be hot or cold, but don't be in between. And so in many ways, we find ourselves, as we look at a passage like this, saying to ourselves, how in the world will the church ever be The the mountain of the house of the Lord, which will be over all the mountains. And I have defined at least seven of those mountains. And guys, go ahead and post those and we'll go down. What I think are the great mountains that define our culture. Uh, I don't don't know that if these things alone define culture, but I know all seven of these things certainly highly influence our culture. For instance, religion. Uh, Religion still defines and influences culture. The second one is the family. The third one is education. The fourth one is business. The fifth one is the media. The next one is arts and entertainment. And then lastly, politics. All of these mountains, I believe together these mountains are mountains of influence. They are mountains of impact. All of these mountains together really begin to define what our culture is all about. And the Scripture tells us that in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord would arise and be above all the other mountains. Now, there may be more than these seven, but these seven at least, I believe, in a generalized way begin to describe the mountains of influence that we find in our culture. How many of you know that Jesus is Lord of all? Jesus is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So when it comes to religion, there's only one way, right? One way. We, we are, we are exclusive here. I just, I don't, I don't hesitate on that point. Someone asked, are, are you preaching exclusivity? Absolutely. Jesus is the gate. He is the door. He's the way to the Father. There is no other way except through Him. That's why we are on a mission and a mandate. Because we believe that to be true. And, and so He's Lord of that area, but He's also Lord of our families. Amen? Families have a lot of important influence on our life, but He's Lord of our families. He's Lord of education. He's the author of all wisdom and knowledge. But how many of you realize today that what goes on in our educational systems and schools is training a generation to believe with a seared and warped conscience things that are exactly the opposite of God's Word? So that mountain has to be influenced again. There's business mountains. I mean, it's sad to say, but in most people's mind, you know, church is church and business is business and never the two shall meet. But Paul wrote in Colossians that whatever you do, you do as unto the Lord. You give glory to God in every field of endeavor. He's the Lord of business. He's the Lord of media. I honestly believe the media. I'm talking about the news media, newspapers, cable news, radio. I believe This is what I believe. I believe God creates these forms of media, and his intention was to disseminate the truth and the gospel. That's why God, you know, allowed the invention of the printing press. Gutenberg invented the printing press, and the first thing he started printing, do you know what he started printing? Bibles, exactly. Well, God was involved in that. Why? He wanted to get his word out to the nations, And I I believe that when the radio came along and TV and all the other forms of media, it was God's releasing knowledge in the earth in order that the gospel could be proclaimed. But do you realize what gospel is being proclaimed? It's not good, but he's Lord of the media. I believe he's Lord of the arts and the entertainment. I believe that because God is the God of creation. I mean, you're most creative when Jesus and his spirit is flowing through your veins. But unfortunately, Hollywood has disseminated its own message. And it has caused the destruction, I believe, of our culture. And then finally, oh, how much could we say about government and politics and all of these areas? And uh, I just simply share with you that I believe that Jesus is Lord of all. I believe that a society works best when he's in the center of it. You can look at any nation right now. I just, just right now, I can say look at nations that have been affected by Christianity and nations that have been affected by Hinduism, nations that have been affected by Buddhism, uh, nations that have been affected by Islam, I'll just give you the choice. You choose which one you want to go live in. You think Islam is so great? Go, go fly yourself over to one of those countries and go live there and let's see how great you think it is. Every civilization has an ideology. Every culture has a prevailing spirit of influence over it. The issue is never uh, uh, who's in... Uh, the, the issue is never uh, what uh, will be the prevail, how, how long I want to say that the issue is, is really never uh, who's in charge, but which spirit will ultimately prevail over that. There's no such thing as neutral. There's no such thing as just everybody's everybody's going to see it, you know, somehow a different way and they're allowed to exist that way. I'm telling you that, that our culture has to be defined by a prevailing ideology and, and through thousands of years now of human history, we can see that God's ways work in the earth. And we should be unashamed of these things. So we started all of this. I'm just doing a quick review. And last week, we, we began to talk to you about what it meant to be a change agent. Because if the mountain of the house of the Lord is to rise above all the other mountains, the nations are going to flow to it. That means that you and I, we are the church, right? That means you and I must have solutions and answers to the questions and the problems that are facing our world today. I, I just, it just aggravates the fire out of me that our current media, when it's facing a crisis, will go interview some Hollywood starlet on their opinion and they'll never ask a servant of the Lord. Just because you get $20 million dollars to read teleprompters and memorize scripts doesn't mean you're an expert in foreign policy. But the reason they don't ask the church is because we've not become knowledgeable in what God's ways are when it comes to economics and it comes to treating the foreigner and it comes to certain issues. We don't understand. We don't understand capitalism from a biblical standpoint. We don't understand these things, but yet they're... All found in god 's Word, and I believe that God is raising up change agents, He is raising up people who, within His church, uh, will begin to arise along with His church, and we are going to be the solution. We are going to be the answer because we have that answer, and His name is Jesus. Jesus really is the answer to everything. that 's not theory, that 's reality. And we send people who've been to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Ivy League schools and they're absolutely disintegrating our nation and our culture. Your smarts no longer means you have an answer. I believe that there are some simple people whose hearts are open to revelation that can bring solution in the earth. They're going to be change agents. And right now God is positioning you and he's positioning me. He's positioning his church into significant influential areas to be change agents. You weren't just called to go to work to get a paycheck. You were called to go to work in order that you might disseminate and spread his gospel and kingdom. He put you in your place of employment in order that you may be a conduit through which his mandate in the world will be accomplished. You are a spy. In a lot of mountains of the Lord. So that's what we've been talking about. And last week we talked about the process that God uses in order to create change agents. We just don't get there overnight. And uh, we're going to have to think generationally. I know Jesus could come very soon. I'll be, I'll be happy as anyone if Jesus were to come tonight or tomorrow. Hallelujah. I'm ready to roll. But until he comes, the scripture says, I'm to occupy. I'm to do business. I'm to be about my father's business. And so we're to be salt. We're to be light. And we talked about the process that God uses in order to raise us up. Now, I'm going to finish that. This is really part two of what we got started with last week. Becoming a change agent. I just put part two. If you want to catch up again, you can go to iTunes. But now flip over to First Corinthians because I'm going to read you some some incredible scripture that'll just boggle the mind. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six. First Corinthians one twenty-six. It says this, For you see your calling, brethren. Everyone in the room today's called. Can you say amen? You say, I don't know that I'm called to the ministry. You're in the ministry right now. If you're breathing and alive, you're in it. no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I always like verse 30. I mean, the first few verses are easily understandable. He basically says that God chooses, that God chooses people nobody else would choose. And then he, then he looks at the Corinthians and he says, that's you. I mean, I, I like how he slips that in there in verse 30. That's you. Isn't it good to know that I can read these verses and all of us can raise our hands in the room and say, I can qualify for that. Foolish things to shame the wise. Ah, I can qualify for that. He uses weak things, not the mighty. I can qualify for that. Do you understand? God's not looking for the super uh, sharp. He's not looking for the super smart. He's looking for the super obedient. That's who he's looking for. He's not looking for you because you're just stylish, which by the way, I just want to mention this. Did you check out my new glasses? I have moved into the 21st century. Now I'm expecting attendance to go up about 50% because of these glasses right now. Those of you that know me know know too much. That's what I'll say. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12.9, we read. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Therefore, I take pleasure, it says, in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, he is strong. Change agents. Now, the question we've been working with is, why is the church no longer a change agent in society? Many of you may know this because you like to study in this area, but for those of you that don't, let me just quickly share with you historically what took place probably in the early colonies uh, of the 13 what would become states every Sunday as people would go to church. They would go to church and obviously this was long before uh, any electronic media. There would have been no TV, no radio, no internet, nothing electronic. There would have been some newspapers uh, that would have been printed if you could read them. And so what people would do is every Sunday they would come to the house of God, and because there was nothing else to do, you realize people would spend literally hours on Sunday in the house of God. Can you imagine? Because there wasn't distractions. And so they'd be in the house of God and they worship God, but there were a lot of other things that would go on in the assembly together. One of the things that would happen is when you would go to church, you would actually hear the pastor read the news to you, because so many people couldn't read. And so literally the church became a place that you would catch up on all the activity, not only of the town, but of these fledgling colonies that were even struggling to to become a nation. And so when all of these things happened in the formation of our country, a lot of the news that went out actually proceeded from the pulpits of the church. Now, this is what's interesting, that as that news began to flow from the pulpits of the church you would not only get the information, but you would get the analysis. You see, you didn't have Fox News and MSNBC and all the other 500 cable channels with their talking heads giving us all analysis of what politicians are saying, which is really interesting. If politicians would just say what they mean, we wouldn't need all this analysis. But you would get analysis. Literally, the pastor would begin to interpret for you, not his viewpoint, but he would begin to interpret for you through the lenses of Scripture what was going on, how it fit into God's economy, God's providence. If there were issues that were going on in the Congress, if there were issues that were going on in the state, he would begin to share with the people what God's Word said on those particular subjects, whether it be economics, taxation, foreign policy it didn't matter what it meant education family every area he would share the news and he would begin to bring interpretation to it again not his view but what the bible said now this is very important because in the day and hour you and i live in we listen to everybody give us analysis but how much analysis do we get with a viewpoint or an eye from god's perspective How often do we hear the great debates of our culture being waged and somewhere in that debate someone says, well, what does God think about it all? What has happened through the years since those early days of the formation of our country, what has happened is is there's been a severe shift in perspective of the culture and this nation. Now listen to me. It's not just that secularists have been the dominant voice in our culture with their perspective. But our problem has been that the church or Christian people have lost their ability to think biblically. And and that's been our problem. Now I'm going to give you some statistics. Now I'm not giving you worldly statistics here. I'm going to give you statistics from the Barna Group, from his last project that's going to share with us some of the things... Uh, that are going on within the life of the church, the life of those who define themselves as Christian. Hold on, you may want to buckle yourself in. 50% of Christians do not believe a personal, definable Satan exists. 76% of the general public would be of that persuasion. Do, Do you all understand half the church doesn't understand that they're in a spiritual battle? you understand that half of the church right now doesn't even think he's alive, doing anything? They've totally ignored what Scripture has said. 50%. Go to the next one, guys. 33% of Christians believe that Jesus actually sinned. Isn't that amazing? 33, uh, literally a third of those who define themselves as Christians would say that their Savior sinned. Next one. Forty percent of Christians believe that they have no responsibility to share their faith. These aren't my numbers. I'm pulling this out of statistical research. It was done by George Barna. Forty percent forty percent forty percent of the church has just, by virtue of their philosophy, has taken themselves out of Great Commission activity. Number five. Twenty five percent of Christians dismiss the idea that the Bible is accurate. In other words, there are things that are probably wrong in there. There are things that are off base, probably need amended, probably need to be reviewed, maybe if we could have our way even taken out. And then the last one I put up here for now is 67% of Christians are unwilling to say that there is absolute truth. Two-thirds of those folks that are coming to church on a Sunday morning in America are unwilling to say that there is absolute truth. I'll be honest with you. I've worked with people long enough that that one doesn't surprise me. Because you can, you can share truth with people and whatever, for whatever reason and however they do it, they dodge it. And you've got to realize that if we don't get back to truth, we're going we're to be on what used to be a slow train to destruction. That train has become Amtrak. It's now a European fast rail. And we're headed to a place, ultimately, I don't think we want to be. All of this indicates that the church at large has lost what we call a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. Men, want to write this down. I put it on the screen overhead. A biblical worldview. What does that mean? It means that the Bible is the framework through which we interpret, analyze, and operate our life and circumstances. Now, I understand there's no such thing as perfect But our problem is is that most of us aren't trying to pursue We've got to arise and now legacy does I think a better job at it because you've got me hounding you all the time But i'm just saying I understand nobody's perfect But we got to break out of the mentality that the only doctrine we're going to live up to is the doctrine of depravity There are other things that god says are available for us and and are actually attainable And one of them is that we can pursue Him and enter into a place of maturity, even completeness and wholeness. And you and I have to arise and begin to ask ourselves questions, not just what do I need to do to get by, but what does God say about this? What does God think about this area? What would God say to me as I go into the voting booth? What would God say to me as I go into my job? What would God say to me as I deal with my marriage? What would God say to me if I'm working with my kids? Come on, I, I, I can appreciate all the talking heads, but I'm, I've listened to Oprah, I've listened to Dr. Phil, I'm still going to find out what God's Word says. Now they may have some great ideas, they've obviously made a lot of money at it. But that doesn't mean just because you have a lot of money, you're all that smart. You just know how to market. So we've got to get a biblical worldview. Now listen to this, Barna Research, says that 19% of Christians have a biblical worldview, and that's generous. Some go as low as 9%. I actually gave you the higher figure. Between 9 and 19%, we're talking about Christians in our nation, have what we would call biblical worldview. In other words, they have learned, they have been trained, they have been taught to make application of life's circumstances through the lenses of the Scripture. of people. Now, I'm going to help you connect the dots. If the mountain of the house of the Lord is to be above all the mountains, do you understand that that 19% has got to increase? All right? And that's God's heart. And it's not just praying for revival. I believe in revival. Revival brings to life those things which are dead, but... But as well as the winds of revival, we need reformation and restoration. There needs to be a significant transforming happening that takes place in the body of Christ in America. We need to be totally Reformed in how we begin to approach life life just isn't about getting along being happy making bucks And god's just gonna bless and endorse that agenda God has a mandate for his people to be the solution in the earth. We are salt. We are light I take that serious because it's in red in my bible Now even when it comes to biblical worldview most people They're biblical with regards to their moral understandings. In other words, we know that we ought to be faithful in our marriage. We ought not commit adultery. We ought not cheat. We ought not steal. So a lot of Christians have a moral compass. But in other areas of life, I'm just telling you, we've just not learned how to make application. Now, I'm going to give you a breakdown of something, and I'm going to get to the good stuff here. So just bear with me. Where you're being trained. Amen? All right. This is a breakdown of biblical worldview in Christians. I want you to look at this. People who are 65 and older, as as this this study went out, 65% of the Christians had a biblical worldview. So in other words, those of you that are 65 and above, there is statistically a greater chance that you have a biblical framework for which you begin to interpret and understand the world. Those who are 47 to 65, that's my age group. 35% of us uh, have that particular viewpoint. We've learned to make application in this area. Go to the next one. Those who are 36 to 46, 16% of them have a biblical worldview. And those that are 35 and younger, 4%. Now, you don't have to be a statistical genius or demographer or have your bachelor's degree in analysis and numbers to begin to see that we're heading in a very bad direction. That most of our young adults and children. Now again, I know I got young adults. I got kids over there. Don't, don't be offended with what I'm about ready to say because it, it's not so much your fault. I told you this from the beginning. I don't blame you. I blame the pulpits. I blame pastors. I blame me. I blame those of us who spent more time worried about how large we could bloat ourselves to be and we forgot that there is a culture that is decaying and dying and we were not training our people to penetrate it in order that we could preserve it for our kids and our grandkids. Right now I think about my children and my potential grandchildren and I am very concerned as to what's going to be handed off to them because right now only 4% of them even have a clue as how to interpret life from a biblical framework. Now again, I'll blame that on, on pastoral leadership, but the truth of the matter is, is that folks, if we're parents and we're leaders, all of us can take our fair share of the blame when we see those particular numbers. But there comes a moment when we when we break out of that and say, now what can we begin to do in order to change this scenario? I may not be able to change America by myself, but my little piece... Of responsibility, I can be faithful with. That's probably how many of you feel. You say to yourself, How in the world can I, can I do anything? It's so large, it's so overwhelming, it's just, it just, it buries you. At this point, the macro issues, we let them go. Right now, we've gotta, we've gotta begin to interpret our own life biblically. You've gotta begin to apply things to your own life. And then your marriage, and then your family, and then you can work on where it is that God's put you in a place of, of of business or commerce. And and I believe if we're faithful with that which is lesser, God gives us that which is greater. But that's where we have to begin, and we have to begin to be zealous about this. And And as I'm sharing with you this morning, I'm exhorting you in your own life. As you begin to make decisions and as you begin to interpret things, you've got to begin to just ask yourself the very simple question, what does God say about it? What does God's word say about it? Before I make a decision, God needs to be at the center of this decision. We have got to begin to train ourselves again to think and believe that way. And then we've got to look at our children. And before we just say yes and no to our kids, we need to look them in the eye and say, Hey, before you do that, if you're going off to school or you're going off to college, what does God say about that? And the college you're going to, what kind of perspective does it have? And I'm not saying you can't go to a to a state college, I'm not saying that, but you need to understand what you're going to. you got to understand what you're in the middle of. If you're in the middle of Babylon, then you're going to have to be a Daniel. And Daniel was a godly young person in the midst of Babylon, Babylonia and, and he aspired to greatness because Daniel had answers to the confusion of Babylon. And if we're gonna send our young people off to state colleges, and I'm all for it because they gotta be engineers and they, they you know, they're gonna learn business and get their business degrees, no problem with that, but we gotta start training these people to be Daniels at their schools. And instead of when we send them off to college, their faith is ripped from them. They're undermined from philosophy professors who get their kicks by having 18-year-olds come into their philosophy class and undermining their faith. This is my view. My view is, is that let the philosophy professor invite me to his classroom. Take me on. Because I've been trained... These four 18 year olds, most of them haven't been trained. They're just, they're just, they've been, they've just been whatever it has been. Most of them have gone to a public school. They've had that input. I'm not saying it's evil, but I'm just saying that they go through the systems of the world and then we're surprised that it's at 4%. Again, I'm not mad. Do I sound mad? Where's my wife at? Do I sound mad? I hope I don't sound mad. I'm not mad. I'm, just, I'm mad at the devil. My wife will tell me, she'll go, Sometimes you got a little mad there. I said, Well, I wasn't really mad at the people, just kind of mad at the situation. You can discern that, can't you? All right. But we got to start asking there. So, four percent, and more than that, if we find ourselves in these categories, what are we doing about ourselves? You see, we got a problem in the body of Christ because as a church, I'm going to say it, we're deceived. When you're deceived, you don't know that you need revival. Can I just share this? If, if you're deceived, you need an awakening. You don't need a revival. You need an awakening. Chuck Colson, in his book, How Then Shall We Live, wrote these words. He said, the church's singular failure in recent decades has been the failure to see Christianity as a life system or worldview that governs every area of our existence. I like what Abram Kupier said. He said, "Every, every atom of the universe is under the lordship of Christ. And when Jesus looks at everything in the universe, he cries out the word, mine. That's true. It's all. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. It's all his. Now, all of this has to change. It's going to change when we become change agents. I can assure you that God is calling you to be a change agent. I don't know where it is He's placed you. I don't know where it is that He may open doors for you. But I know wherever you find yourself at this moment, God's calling you at some level to influence it, to be salt and light in the midst of those things. And together we become we become the influencers of all those seven mountains. And I honestly believe that the reason you're here at Legacy is because we value and make the attempt to help train Christians how to think biblically. All right? But that's a change agent. So I'm going to give you a model of a change agent here. It's a little bit like last week. I talked about Joseph last week. I talked about the process Joseph went through in order that he became number two in all of Egypt. Joseph would certainly fit under this model that I'm going to give you right now. It's it's a little bit of a tweak. I'm kind of in the same area But I want to dwell here to make sure it becomes revelation to all of us. I want to talk about how God unveils a mountain shaker. The change agent model, how God unveils a mountain shaker. I want everyone to say, I am a mountain shaker. I believe that. Do you believe that? You you have to begin to believe that. Number one. This is how God unveils those who will shake mountains. They begin by being an apparent nobody in the eyes of the world. Change agents are not tapped because of their great strength. Usually they're tapped by God because of their weakness and humility. That's why Paul wrote in Corinthians, he said, consider your calling. He said, not many wise according to the flesh. He says, not many strong, but rather they're usually weak. You have to understand, God taps people that nobody else would even think of being Of influence. And I love that because as I reflect upon my own life, and I mean this, believe me, I mean this in the most wonderful ways as I think about all of our lives, we can be tapped. We ain't much. Don't have much. Most of us live week to week. I mean, we're not that big a deal. Most of us in areas that we work in, we're just, we're we're faithful. We do our jobs. I mean, we're just not that much. But you know what? God finds those people and he uses them, even foolish things. (laughs) Isn't that good news? Next time someone looks at you and says you're a fool, just say, hallelujah, I'm called. Think about that. Gideon. An angel shows up to Gideon and I'll never forget the words that Gideon said when the angel comes to him and says, oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response ostensibly was, Who me? Who me? He said, I'm the least in the house of Manasseh. But yet the angel could see the greatness and the possibility in Gideon's life. Gideon was just working wine presses. He wasn't that big a deal. Didn't even think himself to be a big deal. And yet he was the one God tapped in order to be a change agent. You know, Saul... Before he became king, when he was tapped, do you remember the story as to where he was when he was tapped to be king? He was behind some boxes, hiding. Behind some luggage. Now, what happens is to people, unfortunately, like Saul, is that you begin to give them influence, and you give them notoriety, and you give them visibility, and what happens is they get a brain cramp. Just like Saul did. Saul begins to aspire, and all of a sudden he forgets where he came from. And he gets a brain cramp and he loses it all. That is what happens most of the time in the body of Christ. This lowly little pastor that nobody ever thinks about, knows about. All of a sudden, God blesses a ministry. I'll just use pastors because that's my area. And they're raised up to great notoriety and visibility. And they have great influence and all of a sudden they become this possible change agent. And then they're asked a simple question like, is Jesus the only way to heaven? And they miss it. And that's why we are not the mountain above all the other mountains. It's because we we just lose our minds. Moses worked for his father-in-law tending his sheep. David was in a sheep field. Change agents always start out by saying, who me? I can't believe you picked someone like me. Can I share this? Some of you have heard this story before. I'm telling you, when God tapped me to preach the gospel, that was the biggest, you have got to be kidding me moment that you could have imagined. I hyperventilated in front of people. If you stood me up before three people, four people, I would literally lose my breath to where I couldn't talk. Who me? Who me? Yes, you. Well, I don't have much. I can't talk. I stutter. I'm slow of speech. Good. You're just like Moses. I'm not looking for the sharpest. I'm looking for the obedient. I'm not looking for the most gifted or talented or skilled in the eyes of the world. I'm just looking for somebody who'll give me everything they've got. And it may not be much. But God says, if I'm in it, and especially if you're a nobody. Because God loves the nobodies. Pulling them out and making them somebody. So when everybody finally sees it, this is what they say. Ain't no other way they got there. Except God. Aren't you glad you qualify for that? Everybody in this room qualifies for that. Number two, the model. A dream, a call, or a burden begins to manifest. You may be a nobody, but when God taps you, He begins to put a burden on you or a a call or a dream. Any one of a number of things. Joseph had a dream. Moses had a burning bush experience. Nehemiah was just a cupbearer, but he had a burden concerning the walls that had fallen down at Jerusalem. David received a word from Samuel the prophet. God comes in all sorts of ways and different styles... But there's a burden that begins to come to your life. It isn't something that you just decide to do one day. There's a mandate. There's a compulsion. This is what I'm believing. I'm believing that in moments like these, in a church service like this one, that, that just, oh, goofy Pastor Baird, as he's preaching and declaring what he believes to be the Word of the Lord, that you have a moment that something happens on the inside of you that ignites, and you may feel like a nobody, but at that no, nobody stage, you get a mandate. To be a change agent. How many of you realize that there's? I have what's called fire in the bone. Fire in the God wants to give you fire in the bones. Golly, if you know that God's calling you to something, listen to me. You get up early to train for it. You stay up late studying for it. You lose sleep. You fast. You become what the world calls fanatical or zealous. No, it's not. You're, just, you're passionate about what God has put in you. I'm amazed today that we all want to be enabled. We all want to be empowered. But nobody, nobody wants to train anymore. Nobody wants to fast anymore. Nobody wants to pray anymore. Nobody, nobody wants to get up early and say, today is my day. I'm going after the will of God. Nobody wants to stay up late and and begin to let God do some things inside of them. God, if you're going to use me, it's going to be between 8 and 5 and I get weekends off and I want six weeks a year on vacation. You are not a change agent. That is hireling. God is looking for people who are just consumed with his mandate in the earth. That's what it's going to take to switch out that 4%. It's going to take a major mandate on people's lives. Number three, this isn't good news, but I got to tell it to you anyway, because we believe in truth and advertising. Great adversity is unleashed in that person's life. I wish I could spare you from that. I wish I could spare you from every challenge that you will ever face as you pursue the will of God. But when God releases the burden, a dream, a call that is significant, it's kingdom exalting, I'll just say it, all of hell mobilizes. All of hell will begin to mobilize to stop you. Now, does that really surprise any of us? That's why few follow through. Because if you stop doing what God has mandated or asked of you to do, the minute you stop doing it, all the resistance stops. Because hell goes, we stopped them. No need bringing adversity to their life anymore. They've they've stopped. But if you'll keep moving forward, you will break through. Now, I I have asked myself at times, what's the purpose of adversity and what's the purpose of affliction and all of these things that come to a believer's life? And I always remind people, especially those of the charismatic ilk, like I am, that um, that though we believe that uh, at times God is good and He is good, and that most of what He does is good in our life, I believe all of these things, but the Scripture still says that blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sometimes you do the right thing and you're still persecuted. Sometimes you make the right call and you still got things thrown at you. We just need to be reminded of that. It's not always favor, 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 favor. Sometimes you're being obedient and everything's coming against you and you're still in the center of God's will. So what does all this mean? I, I have decided a couple of things that, that affliction may do. Number one is I think, I think it helps you develop a thicker skin. If you can't get through adversity at lower level, you're never going to be given greater things. I've reminded myself of this at times so far. I've not had a website created against me, solely dedicated for my demise. I've not had that happen yet, but but I'm telling you, you become influential and visible and and you become a threat to, to the forces of darkness and literally all hell breaks loose and you've got to learn to face adversity where you are right now. And if you go to work and somebody turns their nose up at you or goes, yeah, yeah, or young people, if you go to school and there's adversity that takes place there and it just seems so overwhelming, hey, God says, toughen up, thicken your skin, press through that thing, you're going to be used for far greater purposes than the one that's throwing arrows at you. The second thing is, is that it keeps you focused. I believe affliction and adversity is, is the great focuser. Because when adversity comes, it can easily distract you, and it purposes you to begin to zero in on those things that God has put before you. There's a great psalm that I ran across, Psalm one nineteen. Listen to this, verse sixty seven. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Isn't that a great verse? You know why affliction comes to us and affliction will come to the church? It's to get us back to keeping His Word and keeping focus again. And change agents are usually those who have a biography or a history of of overcoming great adversity. Number four, a change agent in this, this process again begins to learn leadership skills. God's calling us To great things, then we got to learn how to be leaders. I'm going to end with a quick story here in just a moment, but most people aren't born leaders. Most people learn God's ways at lesser levels and then greater levels are released. I've had to learn this. I've learned this the hard way. I I hope you will listen to me because my pain can be your gain. If you don't want to listen to what pastor has to say, that's your choice, but I can spare you from some of the potholes I've fallen in. I'm telling you right now, that, that this is for me, this is just for me, but, but but it's going to apply to everyone. You are not nearly as smart as you think you are. No, you're not. I'm a pretty smart guy, and I'm not nearly as smart as I think I am. As a matter of fact, I found out that I could be quite dumb in some areas. You're not nearly as anointed as you think you are. You're not nearly as gifted as you think you are. Now, I'm, I'm saying that in order to keep you in the position that you can be tapped by God. Because the minute you think you're all that is the moment God says, I don't have to use you anymore. But the moment you can say, Lord, I'm not much, but, but i, I got to trust you. He's the one that can do amazing things. You see, we've got to learn that if we're going to exercise leadership in the earth, then we've got to exercise leadership in our life and in those areas around us. If you can't apply the Bible in your personal life, or in your home, or in your marriage, or your family, or your child-rearing, or your job site, why would God export your dysfunctionality to everyone else? Even in church leadership, the Scripture says, let them rule their own house before they rule in the house of God. See, God's pretty smart. He says, let's see if they foul up their house first before they come foul up my house. Let's see if they can work it out there before they get these folk. Let's see if they can apply it where everybody really loves them before they go over here to people who only say they love them. That's what happens in a change agent. Number five, God will lead you to key relationships. Talking about how he raises up the model of raising up a godly change agent. He gives you key relationships. I've learned through the years that it's rarely the relationships that I choose. That way you know it's God. I didn't choose him. I, I have relationships that I would choose, but then, but then for whatever reason, God doesn't use that. I, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, when we were looking for a pastor several years ago, for Tracy and myself, um, we, we met these lovely people. Uh, from Gulfport, I'll just say Pastor Van Ducote, Pastor uh, Jan Ducote as well. They've been here. They've ministered here. We love the Ducote's. Love them to this day. Have a, have a good relationship. Don't have a lot of relationship with them, but we have a a good relationship with them. But what happened through the years, I met him because there was something in me that wanted that relationship with him. I'm going to tell you the quick version of the story. For whatever reason, we just we weren't building relationship. Now, here's the deal. Listen to me. I can either be offended by that or I can understand that God, as much as I may have wanted it, maybe that's not you, and so somehow, some way, you're going to open up doors that have the relationships in my life that I need to have. Now listen to me. This is, this is really going to be helpful because some of us want relationships that we want. And if we don't get what we want, we get mad. Do you understand what I just said with that phrase? If we don't get what we want, we get mad. All of our life is not about you getting and me getting what I want or you want. Our life is what God wants. It is not, I am not the center of the universe. My, my God is the center of the universe. It is what he wants. Now listen to this. This is the part I would have missed if I, got, if I got twisted in a knot because I didn't get what I wanted. It was through that initial attempt at relationship that I met Pastor Rod Aguilar, And we hit it off. And through Pastor Rod Aguilard, I met Pastor Larry Stocksdale. And you know, he's a nation shaker, and we hit it off. And you got to begin to understand that God is ordering your steps, and He's leading you places, and you're meeting people right now that maybe you want to get to know, Maybe, maybe it doesn't matter to you, but we need to be sensitized to the fact that God's going to bring us key relationships that are going to open doors for us that will allow us to become the mountain of the house of the Lord that will influence all the mountains. And then finally, of course, the moment of unveiling. The moment of unveiling. When your moment, like Joseph's moment came, and he was unveiled before all of Egypt when he became number two. Or when David's moment came after he ruled in the caves of Adullam, and then he went and ruled in Hebron, and then finally he was brought to Jerusalem. The unveiling took place. Or when Moses, when he was run out of Egypt spending 40 years on the backside of the desert, and then he comes back to Pharaoh's palace, and the unveiling happens where he's God's man for the moment. There's, there's timing in all of this. And sometimes we don't get it, but we need to get it. And, 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 I'm, and I've just been cognizant lately. I've just been truly sensitized lately that God is getting ready to unveil some people. When Trace told me about some of the jobs that were coming out of Tri County, I just, I delighted for you. I delighted that a Maria or a Casey could go in there and help these wonderful people. I believe that probably an unveiling is about ready to happen. When I heard Lisa Boyd's gonna help them fill out applications, you know, Lisa's so quiet, and, but she's faithful, and all of a sudden there's this unveiling that's gonna happen. I'm telling you, some of you are on the brink of your unveilings. But, 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 but we gotta be faithful with what's before us. Amen? Some of you have heard this story, but it fits so well. Some of you haven't. I'm going to tell it. If you've heard it, don't spoil the ending. I was born again when I was 18. I was called to the ministry three months after, just about right after my 18th birthday. God opened amazing doors for me in those early years. From the time I was about 18 to the time I was approximately 23 years old, five years, there were such incredible doors of ministry and opportunity that happened. I was preaching in camp meetings and youth revivals and traveling to churches. My wife was in a singing group. She would travel as well. And I'm telling you, for, for when I was about 21 years old, I, I mean, people who would have wanted a ministry could have been in ministry for 30, 40, 50 years and not be doing the things that God had opened the doors up for me to do. But how many of you know that if a man succeeds too early, it can be the greatest trouble that ever happens in his life. God knew that in my life. wanted to to get married and and, and because we were getting married and uh, I like eating, I needed to get more consistent work. So many of the guys that were going to seminary at the time would work for a grade school. And so I quit all that traveling stuff and I just went to be a custodian at a grade school. How many of you realize that when you're preaching at 21 years old in front of several thousand people and now you're custodian and everybody thinks you're three bricks short of a load that's kind of a boy. that's that's kind of a humbling thing and i'll just tell you it wasn't easy my shift was from three to eleven i would go into the place i would uh... i would do whatever needed to be done at three to eleven in fact school actually ended at three thirty and in that half-hour period, I was amazed at statistically how many kids would get sick on the carpet from 3 to 3. They wouldn't get sick all day long, but from 3 to 3.30, they would wait till I arrived at the job, and they would get sick. And, and, you know, there is another statistic that's interesting how it never hits the tile. It always hits the carpet. Interesting. And, and of course, they'd buzz me, and I'd have to go back and deal with it. And they had this special this special sawdust that you'd sprinkle that would absorb it all. I'm sorry, but it was, it was as gross as you can imagine. And it would always happen about two minutes before the bell would ring and you'd be throwing this stuff out on it. And then the bell would ring and all the classes would let loose and realizing you're dealing from first to sixth grade and they would all walk by and, and no first through sixth grader can walk by, you know, some throw up and not have something to say about it. And they'd make the, Ew, ah, mm, yeah, that stinks. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, they make all, I wouldn't want to touch that. You think I want to touch that? And, and so it was, it was, oh, it was terrible. And about a year of that, and I tell you, I was, I was literally broken. My wife oftentimes, when she'd get off work, she'd pick up dinner. She'd come to the school. The school by that time would be vacant. We'd eat dinner together there. And uh, there were moments that it was just such a humiliating, breaking experience that I would literally, literally weep and go, this wasn't what I was created to do. I'm not called to do this. Lord, you called me for bigger, better, greater things. I don't understand why now I'm here. I know I needed a job, but I don't think this is the job. This doesn't seem to be the Lord. Nobody respects me. Hey, you know what's really hard? It's really hard when you've got a master's of divinity degree, and you know the Koine Greek fluently, and you're walking through the hall, and a teacher stops you, and she starts talking slowly to you because she wants to make sure you understand what the directions are that she's giving you and i'm saying i could be your boss that's how i felt i'm I'm, I'm giving you insight before i get to the end i'll tell you what god's doing there he's producing brokenness and weakness and humility. You say, did you get that then? I was clueless. I was absolutely, I was like any one of you. I was crying out, oh, the devil led me here. <laughs> I miss God. This couldn't be God. I just whine, just like people do. They just whine and whine and whine. When I first get to school in the evening, I would go from room to room to room and pick up garbage from each room. It gave me about 30 seconds in each room to begin to interact with teachers. You do that for three or four years, though. That adds up to a sizable amount of time if you do that five days a week. There was one teacher, Mrs. Miller, who was a kindergarten teacher, that whenever I got to her kindergarten class, it was always chaos. Of course, it was about 3.20 in the afternoon. The kids were ready to get out. She looked like she was just harassed, and she was ready to send them out. She was usually screaming at 3.20 almost every day. And so I used to kid her. Now, at that time, I'm about, what, 23 years old. She's probably 52 years old. I mean, she's old enough to be my mom. And uh, i just kid her. I used to call her mean Mrs. Miller. Just kidding her. And, uh, and, and you'd strike up that kind of 30-second relationship. Some time went by, and I heard through the grapevine of the school that Mrs. Miller had contracted a cancer and that she was actually going to have to be hospitalized for a time. Now, understand, I was already training for the ministry. I understood that you're supposed to share your faith, share the gospel. I'd already been, you know, working on relationship, trying to find ways to share the gospel. Because as long as i got to be here, Lord, I guess I'll share the gospel. And so I heard this and I thought to myself, I'll tell you what I do. I'm going to go visit Mrs. Miller at the hospital. So I got permission to slip out that evening to go visit her in the hospital. I changed out of my custodial clothes. I put on some better clothes. I went to the hospital, pushed the button to the elevator, went up to her room. And when I got to her room, her room was filled with everybody that was somebody. I mean, the superintendent was there and her principal was there and all the teachers and peers. And I mean, it was a room full of somebodies. Here's the custodian and I'm a nobody, but I'm on a mission. So I go in the mission and I'm trying to get through to her, you know, because I'm on this mission and I'm figuring, man, this must be the moment. This is the time. And when I reached her, I shook her hand, just was able to say a few things, but I'll just be honest with you. Mrs. Miller blew me off. So she blew you off. Yeah, because why deal with a nobody when you got a room full of somebodies? See? so I left the room i was lit man i was lit i was lit at mrs miller i was lit at god i was lit at the whole thing i was just mad and and i was pretty much i hit the elevator i'm going down and this is kind of my attitude i hate to admit this but you know you're 23 years old and you're just half you know you're well you're just immature and i'm in the elevator and i go oh that's it god i did my best if she wants to die and go to hell she'll just have to go that was kind of my attitude And then the whole reason my attitude was like that was because I'd been dissed. No other reason. But it was in that elevator. And let me tell you, in those days, we we really didn't know the voice of the Lord all that well. But the voice of the Lord came into that elevator like I'd never had it impact me before. And it was as if the Holy Spirit said, Kevin, this is your assignment. It just began today. I wasn't the brightest, but I knew enough to be obedient. So I said, oh, whatever, I'll try. So the weeks and the months went on. Something interesting began to happen. What happened was, slowly but surely, as the disease began to take its toll, the somebodies started fading away. Of course, they had their own lives. They had their own concerns. They had their own circumstances. You can't blame them. People have to go on with their life. But all the somebodies began to slowly fade away. Unfortunately, and I say this unfortunately, her very husband couldn't handle the disease that she was facing and, and, and I could go into another story, but he literally left her during that time of the disease. Left her and had separated and divorced her as she's going through with what would eventually become a terminal cancer. All that was left coming to the hospital was the nobody. There were no lights there. No newspaper reporters. Nobody was reporting on the events. Nobody knew what was going on. It was just me, who was finally getting to the place, understanding that this was my assignment, Lord, I'm going to do my assignment. I would go in. And, and the day came when Mrs. Miller opened up her heart to Jesus Christ and she received the Lord. Praise God. But the disease had so ravaged her body and so taken a toll that there was no way that she could muster up healing faith. It just, it just wasn't there. And I kept visiting her and, 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 I tell this story and I only tell it because it's just it was it was righteous and compassionate, but at the end of her life we would literally she was in hospice care at her house and we would pull the rocking chairs on her porch and I was I was young. I didn't know what to say in a situation like this. I just didn't know what to do, so I'd sit in a rocking chair, and she'd sit in her rocking chair. She looked like a Holocaust survivor, just in her bathrobe and and her turban. She couldn't even talk her Her mouth was so full of sores she couldn't talk. Sometimes I'd ask her questions and she'd slowly nod her head. And all I could do at times was I'd just lay my hand on her hand, on her rocking chair, and literally we'd just sit there and we'd rock. That's all I could do. The day came, I went to school one evening. There in the box where all the notes were given to teachers and custodians, we were always at the bottom. I pulled a note out, said to go see the principal, and so I went into the principal's office And he said, Kevin, Mrs. Miller's passed away. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. He said she didn't have many requests. She wanted to do a a memorial service if it were possible here at the school. But she did request that you be the one to hold her memorial service, that you would speak at. And I said, well, I'd be glad to. And my life was really so busy going to school, working, all the rest. I really wasn't putting things all together. But I had prepared for that service that Sunday afternoon, the memorial service for Mrs. Miller. I'll never forget, I took my wife with me. We drove over there to the elementary school parking lot. We walked in. It was going to be held in the gymnasium. Literally, I had not put all of this together. But as I walk into the gymnasium, the place is packed. There had to have been almost 1,500 people packed out in that gym. Now, this is the interesting thing. Down there on the front row... The superintendent, the assistant superintendent, all the principals that she'd worked through through the years. There were all the teachers, her peers, that she was currently associated with and that knew her through the years. The parents of the students... Uh, that were currently with her were there in the audience and students that had had her as a teacher and now had grown up and had kids of their own. They were in there and it was just, it was packed from wall to wall. And then somebody told me that through this whole ordeal that the newspaper had been doing articles on her. And so they'd been writing almost weekly articles on her, and so newspaper reporters were there, and the te- television station had picked up on the newspaper article, and so TV cameras were in the gymnasium as well, and this place was packed out with, with media, and with reporters, and with parents, and anybody that was somebody in the school district was there, and they all came to hear the custodian. The nobody do i don't know whether it was naive or just zealousness but i said i may never get a crowd like this again (laughs) mrs miller's gone we know where she is but i got you all and you should have heard me at 23 if you think i'm loud and to the point at 51 you should have heard me at 23 oh mercy just went after it preached the gospel to them Got done, service was over. I'll never forget, the next day when I went to school to go back to being the custodian, my box was filled with notes. Most of them from teachers who wrote me a note saying, we need to, we need to catch up, I need to talk to you. I have some issues in my life and I, I want to know what to do about this. And, and other ones, I've, I've got some children and, and I don't know what to do with them. Literally as the days went on, I had parents that would come in and they would go by the elementary school counselor's office, and they would go down to the custodial closet to find me with their kid in hand, wanting to talk to me about problems they're having at their house. And with God as my witness, I would do this. I would say, well, you know, I'm going to be picking up trash, so you're going to have to follow me. As as, And they would literally follow me around this school as I was picking up trash, telling me all this stuff. I had people stopping me on the street because they'd either been at the service, or they saw it on TV, or they read it in the paper, and they they pass me, and they kind of do the... they go, whoa, whoa, you, you. Now, you're that custodian, aren't you, over there at that grade school? Let me, let me tell you something. At that moment, it was the funniest thing in the world. I was the most famous custodian in school district history. Now, listen. Listen, listen, this is the most important point. I took a long time, but it's a good story, isn't it? It wasn't but about 90, 120 days after that that the doors opened amazingly and God allowed me to go into my first full-time ministry assignment. And I believe to this day that all of that happened because even as, as rough and as whiny and, and as just poorly dispositioned as I was for a short period of time, I understood, or maybe it was just by sheer force of God's sovereignty. I, I hung with my assignment as a nobody in a place where, and listen to me, I didn't, you never know when you're 24 hours away from a miracle. There could be people in this room right now, you are 24 hours away from a miracle, but you don't know that. You are so close to doing something in the flesh that will disqualify you from a miracle. And somewhere, I believe that God will let us see this and and maybe we'll get a laugh out of it. I hope so. Where if we'd only waited just another day, maybe just another week, God did something that would have opened up doors. Yes, you're a nobody. Nobody knows your name. Nobody cares about you. Nobody really wants to be around you. Nobody, nobody thinks much of you. You're just this nobody. God taps nobodies. He loves nobodies. There are days that I squirm about being in a mall. And then I remember, God loves people in malls. Yeah, he does. He loves taking nobodies. And lifting them up his way and his time and his season. And they become somebodies. That's a change agent. For one split second, I had the ability to speak to a school district. That's what God's going to do in these coming days with all of us. So that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be over all the mountains, and the nations will stream to it. Stand with me, will you?